Welcome to Misty's Lunacy. Today, my guest will entertain you in more ways than one. The metaphor for her life is a butterfly, such as the caterpillar stage when she was extremely shy and a dyslexic child. In her cocoon stage, she and her family moved to New York where they were part of a salon of incredible people that included the likes of Dolly, Halston, Elsa Peretti, Diana Vreeland, Ava Gardner, Gunter Sachs, and many, many others. Through her talent and imagination, she then transformed herself into a butterfly, rather unbeknownst to herself, by the way. She emerged to create a major catering business and a shop and help her wonderful husband build a successful design and furniture company while raising two very young children. Please welcome my dear friend and guest, Nadine Kalashnikov. Dan, hello. Hello, my dear friend. I am so happy to have you here, and your stories will enlighten our audience as you have so much enlightened me. So now we have to start a little bit in the past just to bring us all up to date, and I know that you told me that your parents managed to leave uh, Paris for Spain. So I know there's a very interesting story about it, and I want to share it with our audience. Well, my parents met in, in Paris. My mother had left uh, Spain during the Civil War. She was very, very young and went to school in uh, in Paris. And my father, of course, had left Russia and was sent from Russia to England. And he did his studies at Cambridge. And then he went to Paris. And he met my mother. And uh, they had my eldest sister, Barbara. And then I was born. And after I was born, during that time, there was a thing that in... Um, that restaurant Maxime's in Paris, Wonderful. and you had a dansant, sort of, you know, at six o'clock. And father and two of his friends that had left Russia with him, uh, Prince Kira Trubetskoy and Prince Felix Yusupov, who was my godfather, and their wives all went to three couples, went to Maxime's, and they were always in their black tie and silk shirts and probably full of holes, but anyway, still had wonderful and looked handsome as can be all of them. And one day, the German general who had uh, taken over Paris, who was living at the Hotel Maurice where the headquarters was, walked in. And of course, everybody at Maxime's, uh, you know, they, they couldn't panicked. even breathe, panicked, and the music stopped, and they, he went and sat down, and the music started again. And all of a sudden, he saw my mother, who was absolutely beautiful, and he went up to her and asked her, Madame, voulez-vous danser, if you would like to dance, Madame? And of course, the three couples almost fainted because they, they were scared to death. And he clicked his heels, of course. And my father said, no, my wife doesn't dance. He got up and took this general to the dance floor and said, but I dance. And they danced for five seconds. I mean, not very much. Marvelous. And this man who was very, very educated, and he was the general that Hitler called and said, you must burn down Paris. Immediately, we were losing the war. I want Paris to burn. And of course, he, he, he just was dumbfounded. He couldn't think. He was very civilized. He couldn't possibly burn Paris. During that time, uh, my father and he got to be very good friends. My father was a great historian and loved history. And uh, they became friends. And of course, he asked my father, you're probably very hungry. Do you get any food? And my father said, my wife just had a baby, which was me. And um, no, there really isn't very much food because I have 11 women dependent on me and my all my mother's side. And uh, he said, well, what I can do is I, I'm going to invite you to all the sort of diplomatic parties that are going on because war was totally different then. And you had all these diplomatic parties and champagne, all that. And he said, put a newspaper in your pockets and just take as much food as you can. And for a while, that's how they, they all lived. I mean, they had an extraordinary life. And they was happy 
There's a wonderful book called The Berlin Diaries that you should read. I'll get it for you, which is absolutely divine what was happening then. He became great, great friends with father. And uh, my father went and uh, he called my father once to go to the Murphy's Hotel at the headquarters. And uh, he said, you know, Hitler called me to burn Paris, Michel. I can't possibly burn. He opened up the French doors and the French uh, you know, windows to the outside. He said, how can I possibly burn Paris? And father said, you can't. You can't possibly do it. And there was another Swedish man who also told him that. And the man, of course, never burned Paris down. Hitler died of so with that, he asked Father, he said, what would you like? Could I, I want to give you whatever you want. Um, I really, I don't know what to give you, but I'll give you whatever you want. And Father said, well, I'd like to take my children and my Family. wife and my mother-in-law to Spain because I want to eventually go to America and we'll go through Spain, which we did. He called up the uh, Argentine ambassador at that time and off we went in his convertible car to Spain. And we lived in Spain for about two years and then we took a boat from Cadiz to, to New York. Which that's was an amazing story. story. We arrived in New York, and that was another world. Well, that certainly was, because also it was as just as hard as it had been in the beginning. Yeah. So you told me the wonderful story, unfortunately, that you were very, very poor in school, and actually I wasn't so bright at it either. <laughs> and I went to the Notre Dame des Oiseaux in Paris, and my mother used to call it the birdies. Yeah. Everybody would make fun of me that I'd gone to the birds because yeah. I was a bit scatterbrained. Yeah. And you ended up at Hewlett. Hewitt's, yes. yes. It's a wonderful name, Les Dames Isn't it's a it wonderful? wonderful name, wonderful name. And there were, you know, nuns running around, and Mummy said, you know, the birdies is a joke, and of course everybody thought we were completely crackers. Yeah. Uh, but you went to a school that actually had a proper name. Yes, no, we went to a school, and it was a, um, an English, uh, she was the sort of nanny to this family, and the, the, the two children were not very bright, so this very rich couple said, all right, we'll start with Miss Hewitt, the nanny, we'll start a school. So that's the beginning of Hewitt's. And it's still there to this day? It's still there to this day. And I hated every single day, every single hour, every single minute of school. Because but you also had something great. Okay, well, tell yeah. about the... Okay, I'm not going to interrupt. Yeah. No, because I didn't... At the time, of course, I was the stupidest person in the entire school because I just could not do my homework. I, did, I had no interest. My father was so extraordinary when he... When he um, when we asked him, Father, can I can you read this about history and uh, tell us? Well, he would always make history interesting. He would tell you, now, where does this word come from? Or, for example, uh, remember... Uh, Napoleon. Remember his horse? His horse's name was Nicole. If you remember his horse, and you'll remember Napoleon with an N, both of them, and you'll remember that uh, his horse had all sorts of different type of uh, grains to eat, and he would mix them up, and that would say pain pour Nicole, and that's where pumpernickel come from. So everything he taught us was extremely interesting and fun. It wasn't he just could, he could relate to it in a yeah. natural way. Yeah, it was everything. Everything he did, for, and he corrected two books that uh, he was. So he had two. Uh, uh, history books that they had make an, made a mistake on. The, I mean, history books that you learned at school. So I knew I wasn't stupid. I knew I wasn't, but I didn't understand why I couldn't read well. I certainly could never follow instructions. I'd break everything, but I'd fix it myself. I couldn't possibly follow instructions. So imagine following uh, an exam or something. I still can't to this day. To this day, if I have to say the alphabet, I have to sing it. I can't just say A, B, C, and that's it. I have to say A, B, C, and then I can say the whole alphabet. Good but for you. Yeah. Well, so with dyslexia, which was a great, great gift. It, it did turn out to be yes. a great gift. But yes. in the middle of all this, while yeah. you were not so interested in school, your family was yeah. surrounded by the most incredible people ever. And how did that come to be? 
I think that in, in those days you had all these wonderful balls, the Val Blanc, you had the, the, the diamond ball, you had, and all these couples, and they dressed so well, and everything was oh so spectacular. And in one of these balls, my mother met Dali. I think it was probably 1953, 54. And they became great, great friends. Not only did they have the same language, of course, Spanish, but they also had the same brain. Dali was a genius. My mother was a genius in her own way and something that she understood him so well and she adored him. And he was, uh, I mean, he also said that my mother was the most important person in his life. Mother would read to him, he was painting. She'd spend part of the year in Portugat with he and with Gala. And uh, there was nothing, they were not lovers or nothing. They were just so, I mean, mentally the same. Mentally you know, equivalent. You know. So with that, we started, you know, then Halston came into our lives and all the other people, all the other actors, all the uh, Hemingway, all these people. It was like a salon at home, actually. Yeah. It was just marvelous because yeah. you were surrounded by all this creativity yes. without even realizing it. So you're absorbing all yes. of this intelligence and wonderful conversation. Yeah. And it's amazing. They all gathered together like this. Yeah. Oh, they had a wonderful time. And, and you did see it. And you saw two different worlds. You saw my father's world of all the Russian refugees. Yeah. And there was the, the, the sisters of the, of the czar that had come. There was uh, the nieces, the nephews, and, and all these little people, ones with braids with ringlets. Uh, uh, they, it just, there was, that was one side, very historical, very, very uh, extraordinary people and very cultured. And, and then you had the artistic side, which was my mother, right? My mother, when she was 16, uh, she was in, in, they'd moved, as I said, to France. And her first job was to sing with Maurice Chevalier at the sporting club in Monte Carlo. Oh, he's and my she was favorite. 16. Yeah, he was 16. Thank goodness for little girls. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. And she was 16 years old. How and when she met amazing. my father, she stopped, and he was furious at her that uh, uh, Maurice Chevalier was furious at my mother that she stopped. But anyway, uh, so that was there was a, the, the two sides of a world that was wonderful. I was extremely lucky, but I did know it then. I did know that I was in a world that certainly the girls in my class were not in that world. Well, of course not. Yeah. And of course, because you had known all these languages, yeah. you were able yes. to um, to be able to participate in something yeah. that most people did not have the privilege to do so. Exactly. Yeah. Also, it, it, it sort of spurred a bit of your imagination. Yes. Which is what happened to you in the next stage of your life, <laughs> if I may say so, which is your wonderful business that you started. I, your family was very close to you, and that's why right. I call it part of the cocoon stage. Your sister was the closest, and your mother was such a tight family that there was an incredible bonding, which I think gave you tremendous security. Because, unfortunately, I never had that. We were all sort of scattered about. And so I was wandering around sort of, what do I do? Like a little bird without being able to flap a wing, you know? Uh, so you were very lucky that your family was so close because then you weren't f as fearful as you would have been having been transported from France to Spain mm -hmm. to the United States. It must have been quite daunting to be moving around. Especially coming to the United States because I didn't speak a word of English and I had to go to school and I didn't speak a, a, a single word. So that was a, a bit hard. Uh, but somehow, the although we were such a close family, sometimes I was terribly lonely because I went into my own little world that I didn't think I was smart. I mean, I knew I was stupid. I knew I had something else, but I couldn't understand why can't I read well? Why can't I, you know, why can't I get A's at class? Well, how did you find out about this dyslexia? Oh, not until much, much later in life. When my nephew was living with me, I saw that he did everything backwards like I did. If I have to do a, a, a menu, let's say, well, I start with a dessert. Well, there I, you. Yeah, so, well I, he was doing matter. something, and, and I said, but my God, Michael's doing it backwards. And I realized he has what I have. 
And then we realized that that's with dyslexia. That with dyslexia's only been around for about 30 years or 40 years. Well, people never knew how to diagnose it. My mother never knew the left or the right. So we'd always have to sort of, I think she had a little rhythm or a little rhyme that would teach her which way to go, left or right. Because then most people say that you're other left, you know, (laughs) when when you put up the wrong head. Which is true. So many people have so many, now these these illnesses have been created everywhere. I have a wonderful story about the fact of us, we were all sitting around at lunch going, well, my son has... ADD, my son has HD fee, whatever, you know, and all of a sudden my girlfriend says, well, my husband has HDTV. And we said, what in the world is that? He said, well, his mistress is on the news. (laughs) So, I mean, you've got to say, hello, you know, what are these bloody initials all the time? Well, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? So I thought it was very, it made everybody laugh. We sort of forgot the whole subject and said, but you're funnier than we'll ever be. (laughs) <laughs> so, but that did not stop you, my dear, no, from doing no, your... No, no, you oh. had to. You had to, you had to. All right. So now, all of a sudden, you are you're starting your catering business in New York or at Washington? In Washington. First in Washington, because I had not... I mean, I knew Lars, but I, we were not uh, together. And I was married before, and uh, my husband left one day. And I had the two little children. Christopher was six months old, and Howard was two years old. And I had nothing. I mean, we didn't, I couldn't even get milk. I mean, so I had to start working. And the first thing I did was uh, I called a church that used to come around and we'd show the house and then they would get the money from the profits of it, right? And I said, well, maybe I'll just keep the money. And I called them up. I said, I'd like to rent my house or, you know, show my house and I'll, can I keep the money? Because I have to. And I lived like that for about three months. Brilliant. Yeah. And then I, I started a, a pasta shop. Called? Yeah. Pasta. Pasta Inc. And I went to uh, all this. You have to think that I was extraordinarily shy. And, and the shyness came from not knowing that I had dyslexia and that it was great. It's just that I didn't, I didn't, you know, I couldn't answer a question. Uh, so I went and I got these machines and I started this uh, pasta shop. And after a while, everything was taken away from me because I, I wasn't, I'm not a businesswoman, save, or wasn't then. Now I'm much better. And I started catering. And that was a different world. It was All just together. Yeah. completely different. Yeah. And this is where your cre- your creativity shone yes. through. And I have to say that she catered for the White House. I mean, let's not put it into small perspective. <laughs> I'm terribly sorry, but safaris, White yeah. House. She, yeah. you catered uh, 900 uh, dinner for Lady Di and Prince Charles, which yes. was an absolute amazing story. Mm-hmm. Places that nobody had ever been. It just kept on going. And I have to tell you that Martha Stewart actually has admitted on television that she stole ideas from our dear friend here, Nadine Kalashnikov, because her presentations had never been seen the likes of before, and so she became a hit instantly. So mm. let's hear some of your creations that absolutely blew everybody away. And then I want to talk about the Lady Di and Prince Charles's dinner. That just about <laughs> boggled me, and it was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Let, the first time that I had a, a catering job, I took all my silver trays and all of that, and I had to leave early. Uh, I had to go to London that night to talk to my sister about my divorce, and I had to leave early. And when I came back three or four days later, I asked where my silver plates and all that. And my head captain said, they, they kept them. They said that they bought them. And I said, what do you mean they bought them? They certainly didn't. Well, anyway, I never got them back. So the next time I had to do a party, I had to create some way to present the things. Because you had nothing to serve it on. Nothing, absolutely nothing. So I invented or I created baskets with flowers. Um, I had a wonderful little basket that was on a bicycle. I took it off and I lined it and I 
put a little flower, had a top to it. It closed up and down. I opened it up, put a flower and put on asparagus. Then I did a, uh, with the fresh pasta, I did it like a seaweed basket with green pasta and put shells and I put shrimp coming out of the shells. And yeah. I mean, it, it sounds terrible, but it was really Beautiful. something that nobody ever had ever done. And, and it was brilliant. I mean, everybody was talking about yeah. you. And it was just because it was necessity. You know, it was, it was it's survival. And that's what dyslexia teaches you is to survive. Because you, ha you can't go from A to, to C without going through B. Well, you have to be able to see how can I get from A to C without going through B because I don't know what, how to do B. So you have to create some way to survive. But it's incredible because you serve to the most incredible yeah. institutions, yeah. Uh, people, senators, White Houses, and it just kept on going. Uh -huh. And I'm just so impressed out of absolutely not. This is the butterfly in you, you see, yeah. that just emerged into this amazing. So, of course, it was called Nadine. And everybody knew about it. And yeah. so she was going to New York. People were asking her to do parties in New York, parties yeah. in Washington. I, you were running around. In Europe, it was a lot. It was amazing. And uh, tell us about the lady die. That's wonderful. Oh, I forgot. We have to backtrack one minute because when you were doing uh, your papers at school, you asked Hemingway. Yes. This is wonderful. I was about four, 15 or 16. And we, we were three daughters. And we used to take the boat from New York to Spain. And uh, we were living then in, in a place that was wonderful, then Torremolinos, which of course is absolutely horrible now. Uh, and there was a bullfighting season. And I would go to the bullfights with uh, Ernest Hemingway and Eva Gardner. Eva Gardner was in love with a bullfighter called Chamaco. And I met Hemingway through uh, Antonio Ordoñez, who was a bullfighter. And we went one day to the, again, remember, I'm very shy. So we went one day to the hotel, uh, the Malaga big hotel. And as we were having a drink, uh, I asked Hemingway, I said, look, could you please help me out? I have to do a book report. And needless to say, I couldn't possibly do a book report. I have to do a book report. We have to read The Old Man in the Sea. I said, oh, don't worry, Nadine, I'll help you out. So he said, look, I'll give it to you tomorrow. So he wrote out the synopsis of you know, what I had read, Old Man in the Sea. And of course, I read it as, oh, very good. And I presented it at school. When it came back, of course, instead of 10 books that we had to read or five books each, my mother said, are you kidding? You'd each take one book and that's enough and you know, read when you get back to America. And I presented my paper, and I got an F. <laughs> I mean, the, the teachers hated me because they thought I wasn't trying. But the fact is, is that you had had... Hemingway had, wrote, had written my book report, and I got an F. I never told the school. I never obviously told I them. Think I think that's it's a, marvelous. It's just typical. It was typical. He was, well, yeah. I find that amusing. So I didn't mean to segue, but I just remembered this wonderful story. Uh, I'm glad you didn't tell him. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> you, could you imagine? I think you should have stormed into the teacher's room and said, do you know what you just did? That would have been quite amusing. So we're between New York and Washington. You're doing wonderful math things. You had bought little pots, you said, real pots that you would actually put plants in. Mm -hmm. And instead you were decorating them with your chocolate mousse and putting a beautiful flower on the side. Mm -hmm. and people, On the top. On the yeah, top. As if it was a pot. You, know, you had a, a little pot there. They're, I don't know, they're about 10 cents. They're, they're very small terracotta little pots for small little plants, right? Very small. And I would put uh, uh, a little cup inside, and I would put inside that. i put the mousse, and then i crumble up some uh, chocolate cookies on top for the soil, and then a little daisy on the top. Well, that was all that because, as I say, my silverware had disappeared, so I had to do it that way. But it's wonderful. And so, and so she, you became very famous instantly yeah. without your even awareness you were just yes, creating and people were calling and everything so this is an amazing story about the uh, 900 first of all i would not know how to cook for 900 people to tell you the truth and i'm a pretty good cook but that is amazing so chapeau to you but 
they were arriving mm -hmm. at five o'clock and start the story. They're arriving at five o'clock at the National Gallery, and I'd been hired by the National Gallery because they knew of my reputational. And I, by that time, we were living in New York. And we had done part of the food, and we had a house in Washington that I had sold, but the people were so, oh, they were so awful, awful, that I bought it back. And I didn't have the money to do it, but I bought it back and got them out, and we sold it to somebody else. But I still had the right to the house for a while. So we stayed there, and everything was fine. We were very happy. I had all the waiters that I needed, and it's, about, it's probably about 100 waiters that you have you know, for two per table or, or three or whatever, and then the wine and, and all the people in the back cleaning up and all. And I had had a very big party that summer for Edgar Broffman. And he tipped everybody so, so well. You have to realize that the waiters in New York that you can get a handful anytime you want are out-of-work actors who, you know, take the job and that's it. In Washington, these were young men who either were in college for um, medicine or for, you know, they were studying. So they needed the money. It was terribly, terribly important to them. And two nights before the party, everything was set, everything was ready. A lot of things came from home because it was uh, I, for decoration and all that. So it was a big deal to do. Two days before, the captain, who had been with me in, in, uh, in, in Virginia with Edgar Broffin, said, Nadine, I'm terribly sorry, but um, Sean Driscoll, who used to own a company called uh, the Glorious, Glorious Food, uh, said, if we work for you, we can't work for him. And you're only here tonight. So it's a one-night stand where with him we have from the middle of December all the way to the middle of January every single day a party. So we have to work for him. I'll work for you, but the, all the other guys have to work for him because they can't lose this money. Well, I couldn't just say I panicked. I didn't know what to do. I called Evander and Bruce. I could all see Charles, everybody I knew in Washington, but all the waiters were taken because they all had parties for, for the Princess Di and, and Prince Charles. So I hired, I mean, you have no idea that, people that I that were left over that I hired, right? And then I... I the three musketeers and some. And, and some, and some. And they didn't look like musketeers, though. Anyway, so I hired... Uh, so I that night, we went home, and I told Lars, I said, my husband, I said, I, I don't know what to do. I'm going to panic. I'm going to die. I mean, this is it. Catering is terribly special because okay. it is the most stressful business in the world, but that night it ends. Good or bad, it ends. Where decorating goes on forever, which is always worse. But um, I thought, my God, I've got to call the waiters in New York that I have. So I called my captain, Neil Nelson, and I said, Neil, and usually you can get them after one o'clock in the morning because that's when they get home from work or whatever, So um, from all the parties that they do. So I called them up. I said, get me 100 people and get on a bus by six o'clock this morning because you've got to be in Washington before 12. At 12 o'clock, the National Gallery closes and then the dogs come in to sniff for bombs or, or whatever. Right? And you cannot get in until five. There was a lapse between five when they arrived and the guests and the President Reagan and all that, they arrived and then they had to see a movie and you had half an hour to 45 minutes that people can come in. So Neil, of course, said, absolutely. He called me back. He said, I got them all, but they won't double pay. And I said, oh, I, said, I couldn't have cared less. I said, double pay anything you want. So or they arrived. Lady Di and Prince yeah, Charles, yeah. you're going to do what you're going to do. You're going to do. Plus, you know, you have, I'm very professional, which some people would have said, you know, well, listen, that's it. I've, I'm going to call them and say I don't have any waiters. And they decide, you know, that Sean Driscoll did this to me and that. But I didn't. I didn't say a word. So um, 
at 12 o'clock, nothing. One o'clock, nothing. The doors are closed. And I said, that's it. But in those days, they didn't have cell phones and I couldn't get a hold of Neil. So Lars and I started doing as much as we could with these uh, extra waiters just to help us out to open the tables, lock them, put the tablecloths on as much as we could, right? And uh, when uh, at five o'clock, all of a sudden, all these hundred waiters arrived from New York, all dressed, of course, eh? and they set up everything perfectly well. Nobody knew anything. Nobody realized that, uh, oh my God, we were dying. Because the worst thing you can do is show it because then it runs right through every single waiter that yeah, you're you have feared it spreads. You, you never show any kind of emotion, anything until the end. So many, many months later, uh, they called me back from New York to do a party for Paul Mellon. And when they did, I went to the head of the National Gallery. And I said, I, I never told you this, but I want you to know this because they hurt me because I had to pay for the waiters myself and all that, but they would have destroyed you. Me, you never hire you me mean again. Glorious food. Yeah, but they did, they tried to destroy you because had I not been professional, had I not gotten these waiters and paid double for them myself, the party would have been a disaster. And who would have paid for it? You. I mean, it's it was it was a well that was that finished off that. So because of what they had heard yeah. and your honesty, yeah. they got rid. Glorious Foods never came back to Washington. No, they again. didn't because I don't think anybody hired them again after that because they spread around because they realized it. Uh, that, yes, me, well, they never hire me again. Well, they don't pay me what they, okay. No, so, but your loyalty was but, there, yeah, and they, they knew were, it. Yeah. And they didn't know this other group who was trying to yeah. come from behind and sneak yes. off. And they said, why didn't you tell us that night? Well, can you imagine if I told them that night, listen, I don't have any waiters. What, what could, they couldn't do anything more than I did. On the contrary, I did much more because they didn't know anybody in New York. Under but, adversity uh, comes oh, strength. God, yes, yes. I have to say, uh, what a lovely story. So now I want to get... Of course, you did such a wonderful job for so long. But then you, you, your children were raised, and mm-hmm. then you, they went to Buckley. And then, of course, tell us the story about the gun. I thought that was amazing, the story mm-hmm. about the children playing with a gun. I certainly couldn't afford Buckley, but my sister had uh, lived in New York, and we stayed with her. And we got into Buckley, both little boys. And it was, uh, you know, it, it's, I don't like institutions at all like that. I don't like a school. I think the education in America is not very, very good. I agree. And uh, they didn't allow Christopher to speak Spanish because they, you know, they said, you know, you can only learn one language at a time, which I thought was absolutely insane. And to this day, he doesn't speak well. I mean, he understands everything, but he doesn't speak it well because they just, they stopped him. Anyway, so... Um, one day from one weekend, I was in, in uh, doing a catering thing in, at Van Cleef in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, Howard, Lars had taken the children to the country for, for the weekend. And Chris, Howard, sorry, Howard had gone to a friend's house. Now, this friend had, uh, the, his father had all these rifles and guns. And the day before with a rifle, he t- was teaching the boys to shoot at a tin can. Well, that night he put the rifle away and the uh, bullets, uh, but he didn't lock it. And the bullets and a gun must never be in the same place together anyway. And he left them there. So in the morning, one of the little boys loaded the rifle and another little boy, without knowing it, took the rifle and yelled at my son Howard. And to turn around, he was on the other side of the pool and he shot. But he didn't realize that the gun was loaded from what we know. So he shot him in the arm, two inches from his heart. And I, when I found out, I thought I was going to die. But very nicely, my sister told me to, uh, we, I always called her from the airport to say we were right safely. And uh, she said, you have to come to the house immediately. And I said, no, no, I'm going down to the loft because I have all these things that I have with me. He said, no, no, you have to come to the house. So I said, all right. And I went upstairs and she said, you have to call Howard. When she said that, I knew something was wrong. And I said, what's wrong? She said, no, talk to him. And 
I, I said, Howard, are you all right? I called him, of course. Are you all right? And he said, well, mom, I've been shot. Where I absolutely collapsed on the floor. Anyway, so finally I found out what had happened. They told me, the, the lady of the house there, she was Swedish, uh, the owner, she told me exactly what happened. And I called the mother of the little boy who shot Howard. And I said, listen, you have to be careful. You can't, you can't, you understand, you, you, a gun is a gun. It's mostly just a kill. You know, some people have decorations, but it's just a kill. So the next day I went to Buckley. I asked the headmaster if we could have an assembly to teach children that a gun is to kill, whether it's a bird, a person, whatever it is, is that's what it's for. And he said, yes, what a good idea. And Howard said he would talk about it. And I called the National Rifle Association. And with my name is Kalashnikov, of course, they were, thrilled to, do, <laughs> they were thrilled to death. They said, my God, the AK-47. And uh, I said, yes, I was, I was very excited. I thought, gosh, I'd like to teach things like that. I think it was very important to, uh, for children to know about guns. I got back down to the loft before I even had gone the 80 blocks or whatever. The, 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 Lars said, what have you done? The school has called me and they've said this and that, and they have absolutely no intention of, of, of having an assembly. And I said, what do you mean? So I called the headmaster. He said, no, I'm sorry, but the board of trustees have said no because it's not they're, they're afraid we were going to sue. I was going to sue anybody. I was so happy my son was alive. So the next day I went to school. I took my children you know, to the school. I went to the headmaster and I said, these little boys are leaving the school because I don't care what you teach them in English, history, whatever, but you have to teach them life and you have to teach them survival and you have to teach them that guns are bad, you know, all these things. That, of course, I got home. I didn't know what I was going to do with the two boys, so we moved to East Hampton. Which and, I think is marvelous. And that's when Lars Bolander, your dear husband, opened yeah. a store. The first store was in East Hampton, yes. Well, he's very creative. Had he yeah. been doing this for some time? Yes, he all his life. All Amazing. his life. He, when he left uh, Sweden... He went to London, and his first job was with somebody called Gabby Schreiber, who was the woman who invented uh, for BOEC, British Airways, uh, the plastic cups and plastic forks and spoons, and it was, she was quite extraordinary, Gabby. And then he started working for Gunter Sachs. Gunter Sachs was the playboy, the famous German playboy. Oh, we know. His yeah. children went to Rosé. That's right, yes. And yeah. uh, his son just, I think, I think he's passed away, the father, but the son just celebrated some big birthday. Huge birthday. In, in Morocco. In Morocco, the, excuse Morocco. me. Right, yeah. right, right. Morocco, and then Cricri, who was his son by Miria. He was married first. His first yes. son is Rolf, and his wife, who was the love of his life, died. Unfortunately, they gave her penicillin, and she was allergic to it. No. Yeah, and then he had a beautiful, beautiful girl called Brigitte Laff. Do you, ever, do you remember? No, Brigitte? but I love the name. Oh, Brigitte Laff was fantastic. What a name. Yeah. I love and, it. And uh, she developed a brain tumor. Oh, no. But she's fine. She's fine. She's still alive today. No, she's fine. And he carried her everywhere. Every party he went to, he carried her. Oh, she was beautiful. And and then he, he to the day he died, I mean, and probably he's left in his will to take care of her. Always. All his life. But can she walk? Yeah. She's absolutely fine. 100% fine. Then he married Brigitte Bardot. And, that was quite a coup. Yeah. And then uh, the personalities were clashed a bit. Well, I and can imagine. Had, ego versus ego. Yes, yes. <laughs> grand ego, I should Very say. Very grand ego. Yeah, well, that's not so easy. Yeah. You know, that's why Elizabeth Taylor and her husband fought so much. Yes. Because yes. of those incredible eccentric, egocentric <laughs> yeah, personalities. Plus, of course, he had a little bit of a problem with the drink, and that didn't exactly help. Yeah. Because he drank quite heavily, and he'd get very nasty when he drank. But he was, he, uh, yes, but Gunter was different. Gunter had, 
the most wonderful person. It's the only time in my life I wish I spoke German because he spoke absolutely fluent French. But he, you know, they would talk in German and laugh, and they, he was had a great sense of humor. He was one of the most talented. He's another genius. And in my life, thank God, I've met so many geniuses. Uh, he was the greatest photographer that's ever lived. Yeah, true. But it's uh, nobody knows that because all his uh, money went from the photography went into foundation for children. And uh, he, when he was married to Brigitte Bardot, they had all these fights, as I said. And she had an apartment Avenue Foch with a humongous terrace around. And one day when they had a fight, he went and he uh, bought 2,000 red roses. He got on the helicopter and threw them down at her. Oh, oh he, all these things. Oh, you know. How romantic. Yeah. And before he died now, there was a big sale of all Brigitte Bardot's things to go for the animals, to protect the animals. Yes. She's an animal nut. And she had in the sale the engagement ring that Gunter had bought her. Oh. And he bought it back and gave it to her. He said, never, never let go of this. And he gave it to her. Oh, he had all these deals. He was a really extraordinary man. Aren't you lucky to have met him? Yeah. And Lars, I mean, met him and lived with him because Lars had been working for him. He was sort of his, a bit go for a bit everything. He, he did was everything. His protege. He was protege, his yeah, and, he's and, an, and he oh. also taught. Uh, yeah. Your husband taught him so much. So. Yeah. They become very needy. Please do this. I don't know what I'm doing. You figure yes, it out. Yes, exactly. You dress yes, up yes. and go on over yes. the table. You're yes. so good yes. at yes. it. Everything. Everything. And, and of course, decorating must have loved all it because he had carte blanche. Yeah. And so his creativity ran of his own yeah. way. So yeah. between the two of you, creativity is actually wonderful, so long as you don't fight. But see, as Nadine, you said you're so shy. You go into your corner, and he goes into his corner. That's right. <laughs> and that's the way it all works out just great. So now we've got... We had the Nadine Cratering, we had the pasta shop, now we've got the Lars Bolander in, in East Hampton, and then something miraculous, somebody invited you to Palm Beach, right? Well, uh, some great friends of ours, some Canadians, had a, a, a fantastic flamenco party here. They brought 14 flamencos from, uh, from Spain, and being Spanish, my blood is just absolutely flamenco. I just love flamenco. So we came, and one of the guests said, you know, it rained for 10 days in Palm Beach and Cartier ran out of diamonds. And Lars it. and I looked at each other and said, well, we're going to sell the store in New York, come down here. Well, yeah. And we did. <laughs> Which is marvelous. Yeah. I mean, because there is such an entourage in yeah. certain yeah. you know months of the year where just about everybody yeah. that doesn't have anything to do comes down and their mm -hmm. parties galore. And so, of course, all of a sudden, he, because he became so famous already through all the things he'd done, Everybody was flocking to a store. Yeah. Oh, we had wonderful years, the first years, and then, of course, with the recession, it was it uh, hit everybody. I know, but I have some friends who have owned a lot of his work, mm -hmm. and he was very, very pleased. And so he's always telling me, well, that was Lars's store, yeah. and Lars's store. So everybody was very happy about it. But then comes the time for my little one to become a butterfly again. <laughs> it's a wonderful comparison. I must say, you're brilliant to say that. Yeah. It's very good, yeah. So talk to me about the butterfly. Well, we had our shop in uh, first in South County uh, Road, and then we had it down at, at uh, the Antique Road in, in South Dixie. I know that. And we had three shops put together, and one day we said, all right, we got to sell all this to see if we can get new stuff, because from time to time we'd go to Europe, of course, and India or wherever to buy new things. And this little man, bless his soul now, because of the, but at the time, no, I saw he arrived, and we had a 50% sale off of everything on the shop. And there was a wonderful console that was made of rope, really very good looking, and it was $2,400 reduced to $1,200. So this little man that I had seen come out of his Rolls Royce, uh, and I didn't, ne I never talked to, to uh, the you know, uh, clients because I wouldn't know what to say. I'd, first of all, I don't know the price of anything. So, And he goes up to Lars, and he comes up to his, probably his belly button, and goes up to Lars and 
practically puts his finger in his nose and says, ah, I tell you what, I'll give you $800 for that console. And Lars was so well brought up, and you know, it's a completely different world, the Swedes. And he didn't understand what the man said. He said, but no, but it's, it's 1200 it was 24 12. No, but I'll tell you, I'll give you, oh, you have another one there. I'll tell you what, I'll do even better. I'll give you 1600 if you deliver both of them. And Lars said, no, I, I don't understand. And he really didn't. He just didn't understand. It was Mark 24. So I realized that Lars was sort of in a, pa not panic, but he just didn't understand. So I went up to the man and I said, excuse me, is that your Rolls Royce? He said, yes, very proud. And I said, oh, yes, I had a Rolls Royce once. And, you know, the smell of the leather is so fantastic and it drives so well. I just loved it. I really, really did. I had a silver cloud. And uh, and this was sort of a new Rolls Royce. He said, yes, it's a wonderful car. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you $1,200 for your Rolls Royce if you deliver it home. Well, he almost died. He, I mean, he looked at me, and I must say, even even uh, the, the, my staff looked at me, and he left. And I said, Lars, that's it for me at the shop. I just, I can't deal with people. I don't because but I. But you came to protect your husband. Absolutely. Oh, my family's the best. The little tigres came out. The tigres, exactly. So I went home and I threw myself in the in the pool, and I had lost my sister, who was the most important person in my life, and my little sister, and I, um, oops. Anyway, so I, I lost her, and I screamed at my mother, at my father. My mother uh, died six months after my sister because she could take it, and she was right. She's much better where she is, and she's uh, so my father, my mother, my sister. I was screaming at them and saying, "Please, please, give me something else to do. I'll always work. I like working. I enjoy working with my hands. I like creating. I like inventing, and I like the even the the." the the, the stress that, it, that because you 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 own it yourself, you know, it's not stress that comes from somebody else. So I thought they were going to send me a recipe for chocolate chip cookies or something that I could cook and make a fortune on and go on Shark Tank and that's it and do it. And after I was swimming, I saw this butterfly. And used, we used to have a lot of butterflies and now we don't. Like we used to have a tremendous amount of parakeets and parrots here. And that's now you don't. Uh, so I saw this butterfly and I said, oh, and I have a passion for butterflies and nature. And, and if you think of an elephant and the tears that he always has in his eyes and those eyelashes that are you know, a meter long. And, and you think of a butterfly, the delicacy of a butterfly is just powder. You have to believe in something and that's something. I agree. Force They're extremely of, you know. extraordinary magical creatures. Absolutely. So that was it. And uh, one of my staff for Christmas two or three years before had given me a canvas. Now, I put it in the garage like everything else that you don't use, and I never was going to use it. I've never done anything on a canvas, never printed, never did a drawing, nothing. So uh, we had gone to Shanghai and had seen these wonderful butterflies that are made of bird feathers. And Lars was doing emoto, the Japanese restaurant that Piper wonderful. Quinn owns, yeah. and uh, he was decorating it. And I thought, what if I took that canvas and put a piece of papyrus paper, painted it, you know, anything not to have to draw a straight line or anything, painted that, and then put the butterflies on. And Lars said, fine. And I got three more canvases, two more canvases, and I did three of them. We put them up in Emoto, and they sold. And I still, to this day, when somebody tells me that they sold, when Pam at the shop, who is my manager there, uh, says she sold, I can't get over it because I just, I don't understand. <laughs> you know, it's, I just. You're not uh, supposed to, but no. you have, I mean, you must have sold over 200 of them by 300 now. 300 by now. I mean, yeah, it's extraordinary. If you ever see these butterflies, we're going to put them up on Facebook so you can see the extraordinary talent vision and the just the creativity is so beyond i mean to think that you can actually make a tree out of a butterfly for instance and the shapes and the forms i'm very proud of my butterflies because they are my favorite favorite creatures because they're so 
alone, and yet they fly. And they're happy. It makes you happy. Yeah, and, but they're the tiny littlest things that yeah. people might not even notice. Yeah. And sometimes you'll catch one in your eye, and the, the fact that they fly all the way to Mexico on the yeah. jet stream uh-huh. is beyond me, but there's been a very big problems with butterflies lately. Yes. And they are being uh, uh, sort of killed or something there's a pesticides bee. yeah pesticides, pesticides and the bees the, as well and the bees, yes. and, and just uh, this nature form must be able to continue to create itself bees and butterflies you have to have them because they have to go to they pollinate correct, correct. and the only other way to pollinate is with children's uh, little fingers you can't big people have big fingers that's how they get uh, saffron that's why it's so expensive because you have to use little children with small fingers to be able to take the the the, the saffron uh, strings um, out of the crocuses. Amazing, yeah. but they're fantastic. So while everyone has a possibility of an incredible limb, you know anybody yes. can do that, and I believe that Nadine is a proven example that through tragedy and despair, transformation, anything is possible, and you can make butterflies. Anybody can make butterflies of themselves. So I want you to try it on, listeners, and take a look at the butterflies. Because let me tell you, if we can create something so charming out of a butterfly, not knowing that we actually are from the stages of our lives, from childhood to cocoon to actually fulfilling the joys of your life, which it can be very difficult to do. I was lost and struggling for very many years. I was very lucky that I had a chance to be able to do things that I adore, which is talking, having an audience, making people laugh. I never knew that I actually could do that yeah. in a professional manner. So that was a big joy for me. And your joy was to be able to create butterflies. Now, okay. t- some of your clients can't live without you. I mean, one client of yours, I think you told me, had about five of them. Yes, I have a lot of clients that have quite a few of them. And they won't get, they're like, can I have another one? Can yes, I have another yes. one? And they called me up and said, I want one. And can I have a blue one? I can I have? A, I want the yellow ones and do whatever you want, but I want this color for this. And and it's decorative. It's very, you know, the last time that they had a very big art show that I was part of, the art or an art basil is so depressing. It's so vulgar and so that, of course, the butterflies are happy. It's a wonderful thing. It's the, the colors and all that. Well, so it's, 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 it's mind boggling. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like watching too much TV. Yeah. It's gotten so big that you cannot really sort of enjoy it in your piece. There's mm. just too much going on. Yeah. I think it's, very, but the, supposedly the new emerging artists. Uh, pavilion is actually very interesting. Yes. But it's too much for me. It's like over overload, mm-hmm. overload, overload. Yeah. But now you're just finished working on a 10-foot one. Yes. That's com- amazing. I wish I had a 10-foot one. I think mine have covered. <laughs> if I could le- I, I mean, I have butterflies in my hair sometimes. Okay. I have a little monarch by my, by my bed. I have curtains by my bed. And I'd gone to a wonderful party, and they had decorated with butterflies. Mm-hmm. So I took one home, stuck it in my hair. And then I stuck it on my curtain. And my housekeeper said, oh, Mises, there's a butterfly in the house. I said, no, darling, it's not real. It, I just look at it every day because it makes me happy. Yeah, it makes you happy. It's extraordinary. So I love it. I love it. I love my dear. It's just, well, I'm so impressed. And I think the story is absolutely fascinating. So here's to our butterflies, my audience. Please don't forget your possibilities are endless. And this is Miss D's Lunacy. Lead us not into temptation. We can find it ourselves. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.